Welcome. You're listening to a worship podcast from St. Matthew's Episcopal Church. St. Matt's is a neighborhood church with a worldwide community located near the St. Paul campus of the University of Minnesota. We're a community of people invited by Christ to meet him at his table, in each other, and in our neighbors. As apprentices, we practice following the way of Jesus as expressed in the Anglican tradition, in the power of the Spirit, so we can participate in God's healing of ourselves and the world. My name is Blair Pogue, and I'm the rector or lead pastor of St. Matthew's. This worship podcast is for Sunday, November 14. Luther Seminary student Dave McEachran is our preacher. Let's begin with a prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is still to come, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. As for you yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Picture me. It's late December 1998. I'm 11. My family is driving to Salt Lake City to visit friends for New Year's. Some song I've never heard before keeps playing on the radio. Something about partying like it's 1999. Now, you have to forgive me. I'm from California, and I was a kid, so I didn't know very much about Prince. But I assure you, I've learned since I moved here to Minnesota. Anyways, as we're driving at night trying to get to our hotel, I remember I hadn't read my Bible that day. My previous New Year's resolution was to read my Bible daily, 
and I've made it to late December. I can't miss a day now, I think. I start bugging my parents about this. My Bible is packed somewhere in the back of the truck, and they finally let me dig around back there when we stop for gas. I find the Bible, and I can distinctly remember reading some verse, I have no idea what, standing on the tailgate of the truck and using the light of the gas station. I read it, pretty much with no comprehension, but I checked my box. I read the Bible every day that year. Impressive, I know. Now, I bring this up, uh, first of all, because I like poking a little fun at myself, uh, but more importantly, this memory really is a good example of a general tendency I still struggle with. While I was standing on the tailgate, even then, as a kid, I realized there was something mechanical, almost manipulative, about my need to read a passage every day. I knew I wasn't meaningfully engaging with this passage of the Bible, that I was merely checking a box. I had an objective or action to hold on to as proof that I was a good Christian, proof almost of my acceptability to God. And as much as I know I've matured and grown wiser since 1998, maybe a low bar, uh, I still see that same tendency in myself, and I think I see it with other people and sometimes with even churches and institutions. I also see that dynamic in this gospel reading. Uh, this is part of what's known as Mark's Apocalypse, quote unquote, and it includes Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in the year 70. That was a cataclysmic event for Judaism and an important moment in the life of the early Christian movement. Scholars even still use it as a way to debate when the Gospels were written. But I want to focus on the spiritual dimension of this interaction. Notice that Jesus' discussion of the impermanence of the temple is brought about by the disciples' amazement at the grandeur of the temple itself. This temple complex, they seem to be saying, is proof of the chosenness of Israel and of God's love for the Jewish people. On one level, I affirm that. God gave the temple, the Torah, the sacrificial system, the law, all of this to Israel. But on the other hand, Humans being what we are, uh, we often take good things, maybe especially things given directly from God, and we twist them. We treat them as ends in themselves and therefore turn them away from their real purpose. That's what the disciples are showing with their marveling about the grandeur of the temple. And Jesus is warning the disciples at that time against this. Mark then is echoing that warning for the followers of Jesus in his own day, as well as for us. Just like I wanted to have proof of my connection to God by reading the Bible daily, so we twist good things by grasping onto them rather than opening ourselves up to true connection with God, a God who isn't graspable in any way. Jesus will have none of that. The temple, constructed at God's direction, will itself be done away with. And that moves Jesus into a sort of apocalyptic warning, right? The rest of this passage. Now, what are we meant to do with this? 
this sort of apocalyptic literature, I think maybe rightfully unsettles many of us. Can it have a meaning and deep purpose for us today? Allow me to briefly explain the real purpose of this genre of writing from ancient Israel. It's not meant to be a divining rod or a way to predict specific events. Uh, Sometimes you see that, right? People using numerology or identifying political and world leaders as the beast. That is not the purpose. Apocalypse means, as you may know, revelation. It's the title of the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. And uh, this revelation points to the true nature of reality of our lived experience when seen in light of God's movement and work in history. Specifically, apocalypse is a form of God speaking in the midst of oppressive situations. These visions are written in a type of code, a symbolic language, so that the oppressors don't know what's being said. The book of Daniel, for instance, was likely written when Greek successors of Alexander the Great oppressed the people of Judah. So what appear to be, quote, predictions are masked in a type of code language. And Daniel, the king of the north versus the king of the south. And these are codes for warring kingdoms at the time the book was written. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is used as a code word for Rome to keep its author and the Christian audience from being attacked by Roman authorities. Thus, the oddity and symbolic language of this way of speaking is meant as a cover for the real truth and the true goal of this type of writing, the goal of comforting God's people, assuring us that despite surface appearances, God remains present, active, and in control of the movements of history. This isn't done in a way to undermine human responsibility, but to point to a deeper comfort for a persecuted minority. And I think there is deep relevance of that message in our present time with all of the trials we're going through, this global pandemic that seems like it never ends, political strife and turmoil, social upheaval and calls for real and true justice. All of this feels so unsettled, and that's not even counting the personal trials that many of us are going through. The purpose of this type of message is to say that God is with us in this, and there is meaning and purpose to it. Thus, Jesus' discussion of what is going to happen to the temple should not be read as a way to predict the future. Instead, trace the passage briefly with me. The disciples, verse 1, point to the grandeur of the temple complex. Jesus quickly undermines that, cuts that down. The temple will be destroyed. A small group of the apostles come to Jesus and say they want a secret sign to know when is this going to happen. But Jesus refuses to give them that. Instead, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus talks about the strife, struggle, and difficulty that accompany human life at all times. He tells his disciples that this suffering is not without meaning, but is rather the birth pangs of new creation, of God's continual movement to bring new life. 
looking back from our perspective, we know that that new life breaks through in Jesus' coming death and resurrection at that time. But these struggles announce it like the labor before a birth. Something good is happening as difficult as this is. Next, in the final part of our passage, in verses 9 through 11, we see that Jesus is interested in what his followers do in these times of strife and trial. The purpose of Jesus' discussion is to prepare the disciples to be faithful witnesses during persecution, wars, earthquakes, suffering, and famine. We must step back and recognize that, again, we are always living through these times of strife. And Jesus' call is to learn and to relearn faithfulness in the difficult times. You see, the problem with a prediction, if that's all that this passage meant, is that that only has relevance at the moment the thing happens. Jesus' prediction about the temple might be interesting to people watching it happen 1,900 years ago, but it wouldn't say much to us. Instead, Jesus turns the question and the purpose of this passage is to speak of the Holy Spirit's ever-present movement and comfort to us among the trials and tribulations of life. Now, of course, the Gospel of Mark is written after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but it's set during the story. Our Hebrews reading from Hebrews 10 gives us some of this post-resurrection reality. By that point, in the author of Hebrews' mind, the priests are no longer needed to offer sacrifices again and again, day after day, as in the Jerusalem temple. God and humanity have been united in Christ. Jesus has died and been resurrected, and we now live in the time between Jesus' ascension and the full culmination of God's work in history. We come into the trials of life with a confidence in God's redemptive work, a confidence in God's presence with us in our suffering, and that each part of our hurt and suffering will be heard by God and will be made new. Let us then, as the passage indicates, come to God in confidence, as Hebrews says. God's work is accomplished in Jesus. And in Jesus, we are loved and accepted. There is nothing we need to do to bring this about. From a deep and lived experience of that acceptance, we can turn both to God and to one another at times of distress, learning to notice God's movement among the trials. If I were to talk to myself 20 years ago, I'd say reading the Bible is great, but you're already loved. And I've needed to hear that message many times before. So as I wrap up, I want to share a brief further example from a discussion I had with a classmate at Luther Seminary last week. We were tasked by our teacher to share about times we grew spiritually So we had a one-on-one conversation doing this. My classmate pointed to two primary moments of God's presence and really God's action in her life that caused her growth. The first was around marriage difficulties, when shortly after giving birth to her son, her husband became distant and really almost abusive, eventually abandoning her and their son until her husband's death eight years later. 
The second time of spiritual growth was centered around her decision to leave her home in Southeast Asia and come to the U.S. for seminary. This was a big change, of course, and this leap of faith forced her, moved her into a reliance upon God and on other people, upon her church and the community she made. She spoke with joy of the paradoxical peace she found in giving up control, of not grasping onto the comfortable life she had built, but moving to where she was being called. Just like the end of our gospel passage, she had a sense that it was sometimes the Holy Spirit speaking and moving through her because she had gotten out of the way and allowed God to work. And so I wonder, what might God be calling you to? Do you need to hear the comfort of Jesus and connection to God in these difficult times? Do you, like I once did, need to give up something, even a spiritual practice, and something good to turn to what is truly life-giving? Are you one of the many who are struggling? And in that struggle, what might be the new life God is bringing about in you? Or perhaps there is a friend or loved one to whom you can reach out, either to ask for or to offer comfort and acceptance. So, in the silence that follows, consider where God might be both comforting and calling you among the uncertainties of this life. Let us pray together one last time. I invite your prayers for friends, family, and those who are alone. I invite your prayers for countries, places, and people you are concerned about. I invite your prayers for those who are ill and suffering. I invite you to pray for this fragile earth, our island home. I invite your thanksgivings.
I invite you to pray for those who have died. Praise to you, abundant God, for when we ask, you give. When we seek, you show the way. When we knock, you answer. Praise to you for your unfailing grace. Make us now your faithful people. Amen. To God's gracious mercy and protection, I commit you. God bless you, keep you, and be gracious to you. The Lord's face shine upon you. The light of God's countenance lift you up and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, Creator, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.